you would, turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 10. We're actually going to start in chapter 9, 43, and changed it slightly. We're going to go past verse 8 and read to verse 16 today in chapter 10. I want to introduce this text by laying out some family history. Some of you have undoubtedly gotten into studying your family genealogy. I think that's something that just happens as you get older. It just When you're younger, you don't care and you think you know everything, and then you get older and you are really interested in your roots. And I, I haven't spent a whole lot of time researching family history and genealogy. I, my, I have an uncle who's taken a deep dive in. So I have a little information. I, I know that the Wyndhams came from Britain, southern Britain, I think around Wales. Jokingly, I recently was talking with a friend, and I said, you know, my ancestors probably would have been on the side of Longshanks and not William Wallace, and I'm ashamed to say it. But it's interesting It's interesting to think what they may have been doing during the Scottish Revolution, helping out Longshanks crush the rebellion, or hopefully later during the English Reformation they were on the right side of it. But it's interesting to think, what were my ancestors doing during the New Testament period? Have you, have you thought about that? When, when all of this is going on in Acts, and the church is expanding in Jerusalem, and, and Peter is being led around Judea and Samaria and Galilee, and the, the church is being planted, what, what were my ancestors doing in the 40s, 50s, and 60s? I heard... Uh, Dr. Ligon Duncan, who once made a comment on this very thing. And his ancestors uh, were on the same island as mine, uh, but they were much further north in Scotland. And by the way, referring to ancestors, I just need to make a note that every single person, if you go back far enough, has the same two ancestors. But I'm just jumping ahead to the 40s, 50s, and 60s, um, not the 19s, but the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And uh, Dr. Dr. Duncan made the comment about his ancestors, he, and he said that, you know, during the time of Acts, they were probably running around the forests and hills of Scotland, half-naked, worshiping animals and the spirits of nature. That's what mine were doing as well. Worshipping and serving a panoply of Celtic gods and goddesses that would be just as diverse and various as the Greeks. Uh, There were priests called Druids who served as the bridge between these gods and goddesses and the people. They practiced human sacrifice. Uh, There's one form we know about from Ancient Roman writings called the Wicker Man. It's basically, imagine the Trojan horse, but kind of a more crude figure of a, a man and made out of wood and people 
alive would be placed inside and then the man would be set on fire to appease the various gods and goddesses. That's what my ancestors were doing during this time. Running around the woods of southern England, half naked, worshipping these pagan spirits of nature. Now, your ancestors uh, might not be from that same island, could be from another continent. But I want you to think about them and ask, what might they have been doing during this same time? As far as, as, far as I know, there's, I don't know anyone in this room who has Jewish roots. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Um, I'm not aware of anyone in here who has Jewish roots. And so your, uh, the names of the gods and goddesses your people served may have been different from the ones mine served, but the point being, we are all Gentiles. We are all unclean pagans, not Yahweh's people, not the covenant God of Israel, not His people. But in Acts 10, we're going to encounter an incredible change that concerns all of us. The Gentiles are being brought into the people of God. Now, there had been Gentiles before. When the people of Israel came out of Egypt, when Moses brought them out, we're told that there were those in Egypt who went with them. Some other foreigners, some other slaves went with them. It was not simply the people of Israel. And then you have Rahab in Jericho who was a Gentile and yet she's brought in. Ruth is a Moabite and she is brought in. Just a couple chapters ago, back in Acts 8, we saw Philip share the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. We've seen Gentiles, people like us, brought in before on an individual basis, but this is different In Acts 10, we're going to see the doors thrown wide open and the dividing walls between Jews and the rest of us are completely removed. And from thenceforth, irregardless of who your people were or where they were from or what false gods they'd worshipped in the past, If you confessed your sins, repented, and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you would be accepted and forgiven and brought into right relationship with the Creator and His holy people. I've got an uncle who is a plant pathologist and he teaches at UT Knoxville. And, I don't know, a decade or so ago, UT Knoxville was having trouble retaining freshmen. There's a freshman dropout problem. And so they wanted to get creative with some classes just to entice freshmen to stay. And my uncle developed a class. He just birthed it out of his mind. And 
It was a class on the history of the Southeastern Conference. And you wouldn't be surprised, it filled up very quickly. Well, the class um, was so popular that people started to ask him to travel. He'd go to different rotaries and he'd speak and give a presentation on the history of the SEC. And he'd travel all around and talk to people. And it was incredibly entertaining. And there's one thing I remember him saying, and it concerned the expansion of this athletic conference. In 1990, the SEC went from 10 teams to 12 teams. The two that joined in 1990 was the University of Arkansas and the University of South Carolina. And what I remember my uncle saying, he makes a comment about, yeah, and... 1990, they left the doors open and the chickens and pigs came running into the house. It's a picture of what we're going to see today. We're going to see this giant sheet holding all of these various wild animals. It's going to be let down from heaven. And by God's grace, the door will be opened for them to come running into the house. And in these animals, we see a representation of ourself. That this is our story. It's how we are brought into the church and how we're given the hope of the gospel and become his people. So let's pray and then read our text. Father God, send out your light and your truth. Let it lead us. We have come and gathered together as your people We are asking that you would speak to us through your word for our good and our growth. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's start in Acts 9, verse 43. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened. 
and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, this narrative picks up with Peter still in Joppa. He had been in Lydda and healed a paralyzed man named Aeneas and then travels to Joppa and through the power of God, a uh, beloved uh, woman named Tabitha is raised from the dead. And chapter 9 ends with Peter staying in the house of Simon the Tanner. It's a little confusing. You've got Simon also called Peter and then Simon the Tanner. And now this lodging may not seem significant to you, but it's foreshadowing of what is coming. Because a tanner uh, was an unclean occupation. A tannery would have been an unclean place to stay because a tanner dealt every day with the hides and carcasses of dead animals and would turn those into leather. An Old Testament ceremonial law forbid touching the carcasses of dead animals. And yet that is precisely where the Lord providentially placed Peter. He's being prepared for what is coming. Then chapter 10 picks up. And what we're going to do really is to look at these two separate visions. We'll see the vision that is given to Cornelius and then the vision given to Peter. But before we get to Cornelius' vision, Luke introduces us to him. We see that in the town of Caesarea, there's a man named Cornelius. He's a Roman soldier. And more than being a soldier, he's an officer. He's a centurion. He had a hundred men under his command. If you think about this, it makes a bit of sense. A century is a hundred years. A centurion is an officer over a hundred soldiers. He was a leader of men, a man of status. As an officer, he made probably five times that of base infantry. Luke tells us that he was a part of the Italian cohort. From my reading, I learned that the Italian cohort was a voluntary, elite, military group. This is not a group of foreigners who had been conquered and converted to officers within the legion. No, these were true Italians. These were real Romans who had not been forced into service, but they wanted to be there and they signed up and they went through the training and were one of the elite fighting forces in the Roman military. That's who this man is and he's stationed in Caesarea. Verse 1 almost serves 
Well, it doesn't almost. It is. It is a professional description of Cornelius. This is who he is professionally. But then in verse 2, we've got something interesting. We also have a description of his faith. In verse 2, Luke writes that he was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Man, just think, to have, to have your name recorded in Holy Scripture, and then to have a description like this attached to it, what high praise. High praise given to this man. We see that he was a devout man who feared God. As you're reading your Bible, especially in the New Testament, you'll see different categories for people. You have Jews and you have Gentiles, but then there's this other category that you'll see. It's the category of God-fearer. God-fearer. And this was a Gentile who had almost completely converted to Judaism. This was someone committed to Jewish belief, connected to the Jewish community. They would attend synagogue to worship, even though they had to sit in the back and couldn't speak. God-fearers did not believe in the gods and goddesses of Rome or Greece. They believed in Yahweh, the Most High God of Israel. The main difference was adherence to ceremonial law. What they ate, not being circumcised, things like that. And those ceremonial distinctions, those are the things that kept them at arm's length. The reason why they were not fully Brought in, even though we're told later that the Jewish community in Caesarea thought very highly of Cornelius. He's still only a God fearer. He's not circumcised, didn't keep kosher, so he's not brought in. Even though this is an honorable, upstanding, spiritually minded man. And notice it's not just him, also his household. Long to know the one true God. It's quite the introduction. Before we move on, I would invite you to think about this. Verse 1, we have his professional bio. And in verse 2, we have his faith bio. If someone was writing a short biography on you to post in the newspaper or on a website or something... Would they be able to give a verse 1 and a verse 2? I'm sure most of us, whether you work inside the home or outside of the home, you're able to give a snapshot of your profession and how you labor on a daily basis. Most of us share openly and honestly with everyone what we do and how we do it and why we do it. But do people also know what we believe Do they know the hope that is within us? We'll talk to people openly about what they do, but when it comes to faith, that seems to be a bit more private or we're more standoffish. Cornelius is a wonderful example for us. He was a leader. He was competent. He carried a sword on a daily basis and knew how to use it. And he also practiced his faith openly and publicly. 
He taught his family. He was generous. He gave to those in need. He was a man of prayer. And I'm assuming that he has discipled and shared his beliefs with those underneath him. We're told that one of the three men that he sends to go find Peter is a devout soldier. I'm assuming that Cornelius has had a pretty important impact on this lower officer. Well, that's our introduction to Cornelius. But in verse 3, we're told that around 3 p.m., that's the ninth hour, he sees a vision. And in this vision, an angel of God comes to him and calls him by name. And we aren't given a visual description of this angel. I guess I'm glad for that because we're told that what Cornelius sees terrifies him. This centurion of the Italian cohort is terrified and says, What is it, Lord? And the angel responds and says, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. It is amazing that this Gentile's prayers, his sacrifices, his giving have reached the Lord. And not only that, they have pleased him. They are sweet to him. And now the Lord is recognizing him. If he'd gone to the temple in Jerusalem, he would have had to stay outside in the court of the Gentiles. He couldn't have gone inside to worship with the other men. But here is the Lord God recognizing this man. His prayers have been heard. You might say, all right, well, what, what was he praying for? We aren't told here, but if you look at chapter 11, go ahead, one chapter, verse 14. Peter is recounting this story, and we see the angel's instructions beginning in the middle of verse 13. Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved you and all your household. Again, I think it is safe to assume that was the prayer the Lord heard. It's a prayer God loves. Lord, save me and my household. Save me, but not only me, save my children, save my brothers and my sisters, Save my parents, save my grandparents. Bring us the word that will cause our hearts to be born again to saving faith in you. That prayer is heard. And the angel gives instructions. Send men to Joppa. Find Simon Peter. He's staying at Simon the Tanner's. Bring him to you that you might hear his word and salvation will come to your household. Simple enough. Cornelius obeys. He sends three men to Joppa to get Peter. Soldiers are trained to follow orders, right? That's what he does. In the next vision, we see uh, what Peter sees. And it is of incredible importance to Gentiles like you and me. 
Luke jumps ahead one day. This begins in verse 9. Luke jumps ahead one day and tells us that the three men sent by Cornelius, are they're en route. They're coming near Peter and Joppa. And around noon, uh, Peter is hungry, but lunch isn't ready. It's being prepared, and so he just wants to escape the hustle and noise of the house. And so he goes upstairs, and he sits on the roof, and he said, I'm just going to pray until lunch is ready. And we're told that he's up on the roof, and he falls into a trance. Now, I, I wanted to do a little more looking into that word because when I think trance, I mean your eyes just kind of go bug-eyed and you see black and white circles just kind of swirling around. I didn't really know exactly what to think, so I, I did a little digging. The Greek here is ex, uh, ecstasis. Ecstasis, and that should remind you of a word we commonly use, ecstasy. Ecstasis. It means a displacement of the mind. Bewilderment. My favorite definition is thrown into a state of blended fear and wonder. We see another form of this word used in the Gospels, and it's always translated as amazement and astonishment. That's what Peter is thrown into. He's praying on the roof, he's hungry waiting on lunch, and his mind is thrown into this state of blended fear and wonder, and he sees something incredible. Luke tells us in verse 11, he sees the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth, and in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. So in your mind, imagine the opposite of a parachute. Right. With a parachute, you have this huge piece of fabric spread out above the sky, spread out in the sky, but it's above you, or that's where the parachute should be, at least. You want it, you want it above you, not below you. Well, this is the opposite. It's a huge sheet spread out across the sky, but there's nothing under it. Rather, it is full, like a hammock, of all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds. You know, when I was a kid, I had a poster from the Cincinnati Zoo in my room. It's three feet by five feet, just covered with animals. And I can still picture it. And there's a giraffe and a boa constrictor and a, a young gorilla, crocodile, parrots just covered with animals. And that's what Peter sees in this sheet that's being let down from heaven. And then at, while he's seeing this, he hears words that absolutely shocked him. He hears, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, hearing those words would have been a million times more shocking than the actual vision he is seeing. And we understand why it's shocking. We hear it in Peter's response. He says, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. I need to talk briefly about that word common. When you and I use the word common, how do we use it? It means ordinary, normal, 
every day. Nothing special, it's, it's just common. That's, that's not the use here. And, and you can see it in Peter's response. Common means dirty. Impure, something that has not been set apart and special, but something that is unclean. Something that will defile you. And Peter says, I have never eaten anything unclean. He knew the dietary laws from Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. He knew that he couldn't eat a a camel or a rabbit or a pig or a shrimp or a lobster or a crab or eagle or vulture or seagull, owl, heron, bat. Special significance to 2020, right? No winged insects, no mice, no monitor lizards, no chameleons, just to name a few. Apparently some of those very animals were on this sheet because God told Peter, go and eat, and it horrified him. Now it's easy to rip on Peter. It's always easy to rip on Peter. He makes it easy. And and you could say, you know, Peter, those two words, Lord and no, are too often used in the same sentence. They come out of your mouth far too often. But you know, I, I don't want to beat Peter up. I want to give Peter the benefit of the doubt here. Let's give him some credit. He's grown in his sanctification and his maturity. He's not perfect. A few chapters he'll be famously rebuked by Paul. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. And assume he is wanting to be faithful and obedient to the commands of God. And so he says, no way can I eat these unclean animals. I know the law. My whole life, I have tried my best to keep the dietary code and I'm not stopping now. He's thinking, God, I know you're very particular about what we eat. You made that clear in Leviticus You made it clear in Deuteronomy. And now you're telling me I'm supposed to be like a Cajun and just catch, clean, and cook almost anything? Maybe he thought this was some kind of test. He wanted to prove faithful, but it was not a test. In verse 15, the Lord says, What God has made clean... Do not call common. And then this vision is repeated. It's repeated a total of three times to make sure Peter gets the picture. What God has made clean, do not call common, do not call dirty, do not call defiled. What's God doing here? Well, when we see the rest of the narrative that's coming, it's obvious. We, we know what's going on with Cornelius. We know that God commanded him to, see, to send three men to Peter. We know that God will command Peter to go with those three men and enter the house of a Gentile. Just doing that would make him ceremonially unclean. Have, have you ever been in a house? Maybe you're just visiting and dropping something off and you're like, man, if I had to eat here, I would be disgusted. I don't know if you've ever been most of us maybe have, but you've been in a house and you're like, there's, there's no way. I, it, it would be disgusting to go in, into that house and eat. 
A Jew would think that going into any Gentile home. It didn't matter how neat or clean the person was. Entering a Gentile home would make you unclean. The thought of going there and eating was gross. And yet God is putting this whole thing together. Sending these men to get Peter and to take him back and telling Peter, go with them. And what I have made clean, do not call common. This is more or deeper than just food. The the vision doesn't just end with, you know, the buffet's open. You can enjoy shrimp wrapped in bacon now. It's way more than that. It's not about clean and unclean food. It's about clean and unclean people. What we're seeing is that all the dividers, all the walls that were erected to separate God's people and to distinguish them from the nations, those dividing lines are being erased. And it shouldn't be surprising. The Lord Jesus said at the very beginning of of the book of Acts, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The deeper issue here is people. The doors are being thrown open to the nations so that people from every tribe and tongue and nation, anyone who would believe on Christ is welcome. And in Him, they will no longer be Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, but they're all one in Christ. You know, I said at the beginning of of the sermon that this is our story because we're all, as far as I know, from Gentile backgrounds. And when we see this vision that Peter sees, when we read about it and we We read of this sheet full of unclean animals. I want you to remember that this is a picture of us. That you and I are those good-for-nothing, gross, creeping things. But God, our God has opened the door wide so that we might run in. And He's saying, what I have made clean... Do not call unclean. Because I have gathered them together and cleansed them by the blood of my Son, Jesus Christ. I got three brief closing applications for you, and then we're done. Number one, do not call dirty what God has made clean. There's lots of different ways we can do this calling something dirty that God has made clean. I just thought of of a couple. One could be not accepting a brother or sister who comes to Christ. You, You don't accept them because you remember their sin and you continue to hold it against them. You still view them as dirty even though God has made them clean. And listen, in a small town where a vast majority of the people grew up here and are friends with and know people. uh, They've known people for 40, 50, 60 years that they were in kindergarten with. 
But that's, that's where we are. And in a small town like this, there is a lot of history. There's a lot of knowledge. And people can change. The grace of God can change people's hearts. But it's easy to still hold their sin against them. They may become a believer. Their faith becomes real to them. But you still say, oh yeah, he's an alcoholic. He used to go here. He used to do that. If only you knew her back in high school, you wouldn't think so highly of her. What God has made clean, we are not to call unclean. I heard a Tolkien quote yesterday. I was driving in my car and listening to the Two Towers audiobook. Don't worry, I'm not giving you a history on ints. It's just a quote. The quote is this, the treacherous are ever distrustful. The treacherous are ever distrustful. There's a warning here to those who do not forgive. A warning. If, if you are one who by character cannot forgive others, that points to the fact that you yourself are probably not forgiven. If you are someone who still holds someone's sin against them, be warned that your sin is probably still held against you. Do not call dirty what God has made clean. You know, maybe we don't, call it. Maybe we don't say it out loud and we don't verbalize it, but we think it. Don't put those barriers back up. Those partitions between the clean and the unclean people and then look down on them and think of yourself as morally superior. Listen, this applies to yourself. Maybe you're plagued with self-loathing and self-hatred and You know your guilt and the sins in your past and you struggle with shame. And and, and your, your struggle is not seeing other people as dirty, but seeing yourself as dirty, even though even though you've believed in Christ. Don't call dirty what God has made clean. That's the first application. The second one is this what makes you dirty? What makes you impure? What makes you unclean? Well, I'm going to keep this simple and just quote Jesus. Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and the people had left, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then you are also without understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, 
coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. When we think about why we're dirty and why we are unclean, there's a proclivity we have to blame others. It came from outside. They made me unclean. They did this to me. It's my government's fault. It's my spouse's fault. It's my boss's fault. Or it's it's because of my parents. No. Out of the heart of man comes the sin that defiles. And that sin is in every one of us. And we are in need of cleansing. And that's leads to the third and final application. Where do we go for cleansing? One answer and one alone. We go to Jesus Christ and we confess Him and we put our hope in Him and He does something amazing. He unites Himself to us. He unites Himself to you and you are hidden In Him. And if you are hidden within Him by faith, you can never be called unclean again. Paul, when writing to the church in Corinth, he gives a laundry list of sins similar to the ones I just read from Mark. But then he says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Where do we go for cleansing? We go to Jesus. Run to Him. Put your trust in Him as the only one who can bring healing and truly make you clean. Do not call unclean what God has made clean. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in opening the doors for us, us who were far off, strangers, foreigners, aliens, those who were separated from you, and in your opening the door and bringing us in, you have done an incredible act of grace and, comprehend, and condescension that we will spend the rest of eternity pondering and rejoicing over. That you have welcomed us. That you have extended your hand and offered us forgiveness and acceptance. Father, would we see and would we rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross that has made us clean? Would we be those who quickly forgive as we were forgiven? And would we be those who have a confidence and assurance given to us by your Spirit that because of the blood of Jesus and nothing that we have done or can do by his blood and his blood alone, we're cleaned. Father, help us to rest in this. And may that rest and assurance fuel good work for you, telling others this wonderful news. 
and serving them and loving them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.